all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Hi everyone, welcome back to season three, episode three of Professionally Embarrassing. And thank you to all of those who have voted for us in the Family Law Awards. We're so, so grateful. And we look forward to hearing the result sometime in November and very exciting times. So this week we've got a couple more in-depth cases for you. We might do another little roundup in a few episodes time. And we're also talking about some interesting articles that have been released this week about the judiciary and the bar and some interesting new podcasts for you. So Malka, I'll hand over to you for the first case of this episode. So I'm doing a really interesting case on something that I haven't really heard about before. And it's called, the citation will be in the show notes, and it's the judgment by Her Honour Judge Lazarus sitting in Bromley. And it's about something called BEST question mark. I add the question mark because the question mark is deliberately there. Do you know what BEST question mark is, Maddie? No clue, never heard of it. Do you know what LIFT is? L-I-F-T, London Infant Family Team. I did know that, yes. So I hadn't heard of any of these, but it's probably something that practitioners in London may encounter. So I thought this would be a really useful, informative case to go through. And it's about a little baby boy called X. And he's the eighth child of the mother in these proceedings. And unfortunately, none of X's older siblings were still in the mother's care. The mother had had a huge amount of trauma in her childhood. And that, of course, had been compounded by the trauma of being in various dysfunctional relationships and also of course the loss of her children from her care. The mother in this case also had a mild learning disability and a diagnosis of emotionally unstable personality disorder. Dad was in prison, he's not going to be released for a couple of years so he didn't really play a part in these proceedings. So earlier in the proceedings the plan of the local authority had been adoption And that was based on the outcome of the relatively recently concluded previous proceedings where three of this mother's children were made subject to care orders with placement in long-term foster care in 2020. Various other negative reports had also been completed in proceedings and the negative assessment by something called the London Infant and Family Team, LIFT. The LIFT assessment concluded that mother was too damaged and dysfunctional because of her trauma and her personality disorder to meet X's needs within his timescales. And I'll come back to what LIFT is. So initially there was a lot of delay in the proceedings because father refuted paternity and then a special guardianship assessment was completed of a paternal aunt, which was positive. And the assessment of the aunt for anyone who's not a care practitioner The assessment was done because in care proceedings, alternate carers are assessed as backups in the event that children can't be cared for by their parents. So by the time the final hearing was relisted, 
nearly a year and a half after the originally listed final hearing. The mother had actually managed to make that delay work for her. She had time to care for X for a significant period. She was able to show that she could work with professionals. An updating report from her psychiatrist could be obtained. Her mental health was stable. She'd given up cannabis. She was taking her medication. She had a good relationship with the social worker. She'd engaged well with the family support worker. So she was in a very different position to where she had been before. And in fact, since mid-July, she had been living with X at home full-time following a transition from a residential unit. So the local authority shifted their plan, but not to X living with his mother. They shifted their plan from seeking adoption to placement with the positively assessed paternal aunt. The court at the final hearing heard from expert witnesses, including from Lyft, and that led to such significant concerns being raised about the lift assessment that the parties provided a joint statement to the court criticizing the lift assessment and the local authority specifically said we can't rely on this anymore. So what is lift? So there is something called BEST question mark which is a randomized controlled trial research exercise Apparently, it was approved a few years ago for incorporation in appropriate care proceedings in a specific geographical area by the president of the family division. And the trial effectively evaluates outcomes of a parenting intervention using a mental health focus model by LIFT and compares that against social work care service as usual. And they use the acronym SAU. So it assesses what outcomes are for children down those two different paths. And once parents give their consent to participate, they are randomly allocated to one of these paths. And those who are allocated to LIFT do an initial 18-week assessment. LIFT then determines whether it will offer additional treatment to the families, and that could take an additional three to seven months. Inevitably, what that means is that the case gets pulled out of the standard 26-week track for conclusion of cases in care proceedings. And then the research team follows children over the next two and a half years, sees how they develop over time. Alternatively, if the initial assessment is negative, it's filed in proceedings as an expert parenting assessment and the court timetable proceeds as usual, which is what happened in this case. There is a video linked in the judgment, which I found quite helpful explaining what best question mark is. So I will link that. With me so far, Maddie. Yeah. So mum opts to take part in the trial. She is allocated to Lyft, who filed their assessment in June 2021, and that was negative. And from the outset, mother's lawyers raised concerns about Lyft's methodology and that they weren't adequately taking into account the progress that the mother had been making. The court made various directions that it seems that Lyft wasn't very helpful in terms of complying with those directions. So there was a lot of resistance to any witness attending court, apart from Dr. Lamb, who was the Lyft consultant psychiatrist and the lead clinician in this case. Effectively, the other witnesses' attendance wasn't agreed until a witness summons was threatened. Notes of assessment sessions and meetings and other source material were not provided as directed by the court. Lyft suggested that these things weren't necessary and that it would also be hard to obtain them from NSPCC files. And then it turned out there were 2000 pages and video footage which were available. So over the course of witness examination, it became apparent that the social worker who had been allocated to this case and who had been the person who had done the bulk of the work with this mother, Miss Watts, was 
relatively inexperienced. She had qualified in 2014, but she had prepared very few Section 7 reports in private law proceedings and a maximum of two social work assessments in care proceedings when she was a trainee. She spent three years working in the NSPCC in a very different role, and she had no specific training or experience in working with parents with a learning difficulty, with mental health issues or personality disorders. So completely inappropriate to be completing this sort of assessment. She was the one, as I said, who did all the sessions with the mother, save that the mother had a chance encounter with Dr. Lam, the consultant, psychiatrist and lead clinician. She had a chance encounter with her in a corridor and then met Dr. Lam at the feedback meeting after the report was concluded. So while Dr. Lam supposedly had oversight of the report, big chunks of it had been drafted by Miss Watts and Dr. Lam couldn't satisfactorily explain what interrogation or supervision of the raw observations by the social worker had been carried out. It also became apparent that there had been no plan of work for the assessment. There was no indication of how mother's mental health or her learning difficulty would be factored into the assessment. Miss Watts, the social worker, confirmed that she hadn't regularly written up notes of her sessions with the mother, so she often fed back orally to Dr. Lamb. There were no adequate notes of supervision meetings, despite the court being told that there were fortnightly meetings. And the term the judge uses is the lack of notes made it difficult to track the, quote, evolution of thinking. So effectively, it was difficult to follow their thought process and coming to the conclusions that they eventually came to. I'm not going to go through all the difficulties that the court identified as I, I don't have time. But one last thing which was interesting, I've never heard of this, was Lyft used something called the still face exercise. Have you ever heard of this, Maddie? I have not. It sounded a bit odd to me. And now that I know what it is, it still sounds a bit odd to me. But it's apparently used to assess the quality and style of relationship between an adult and a child. And it was carried out in this case by Lyft with both the mother and Ex's foster carer at the time. So the adult and ex have a period of normal interaction without touching ex. They then turn away and then turn back with a still non-expressive face for a fixed period of time before they then resume normal interaction, again, still without being able to touch ex. And from that exercise, Lyft concluded that X had a meaningful relationship with the foster carer and was accustomed to having his needs met by her, but didn't with the mother who showed emotional discomfort and was unable to soothe X unless she picked him up. I'll just let that sink in for a moment. Maddie's got this really bewildered expression on her face. This is what my face looked like when I was reading it. So a couple of things caused the judge great concern. One was that the two situations were being compared to criticize the quality and style of the relationship between her and X. But apparently X was distressed for a period of time before the exercise even started with the mother. So that was a, a different set of circumstances than with the foster carer. Two different practitioners carried out the exercise with the two adults, which added another variable. Mother had never been to the lift offices before. She was not permitted to attend with her advocate, I use advocate in a different sense to a lawyer, I mean a lay advocate, which is not good practice when working with parents who have a learning difficulty. And then, which is probably the reason why Maddie looked a bit confused, the judge wasn't clear why touch was excluded, and why mother was expected to sue the child by words alone. And the judge raised various other concerns about this exercise, which I'm not going to go through in any detail 
more detail than that, but suffice to say, she concludes, quote, there would appear to be too many variables that need to be considered, as is particularly evident in this case, to land so firmly on any purported interpretations of specific maternal failings and to place such unequivocal weight upon this use of the procedure as part of Lyft's assessment and Dr. Lamb in her evidence. Finally, the court was also critical of the social worker's use of the term emotional dysregulation, emotional arousal in the report of the mother. It's a term that Maddie and I see bandied about by professionals quite a lot, but they are actually very specific terms. And Miss Watts and Dr. Lamb were actually only able to give two examples of this so-called dysregulation. And in fact, Miss Watts, the social worker, eventually conceded under cross-examination that what she was actually describing was degrees of frustration and upset which were not, quote, psychological or aberrant, which is what Dr. McDermott, the psychiatrist, said needed to be present to warrant that label. So it's an example of social workers pathologizing what is quite natural human responses to stressful circumstances. And the court found that she was misusing specialist terms that she didn't have the qualifications or the understanding to apply correctly. Finally, the judge was concerned that none of the Lyft team were willing to consider the evidence of the Guardian or the independent reviewing officer in that they didn't take that into account, I think that could alter their opinion. And the judge says, I'm disappointed and concerned at Lyft's and specifically Dr. Lamb's refusal or failure to consider the accounts of two highly experienced professionals who had long experience of this mother and were therefore able to contrast mother as she had been presenting throughout these proceedings compared to how she presented previously and who each have many years social experience. The refusal to acknowledge or explore adequately the progression or improvement in mother's behavior and presentation meant that this highly relevant information was not properly considered either within their report or by Dr. Lamb in her oral evidence. It was unfortunately suggestive of a preemptive decision to treat mother as a lost cause and as a preference to stubbornly defend an inadequate approach in their assessment exercise and their emphatic reliance on Dr. McDermott's 2018 report by then three years old, rather than to contemplate any weakness in their assessment, any progress by mother, or any need for an updating analysis or fresh approach to mother's mental health. The judge then goes on to make some quite damaging conclusions, draw some quite damaging conclusions about the lift assessment. And she says, unfortunately and unequivocally, for all the reasons above, the assessment process was fundamentally flawed and cannot be relied on. Its methodology was inadequate. She says the approach was narrow and appeared prejudiced by the history rather than being open to the developments. She says that Miss Watts, the social worker, should never have been given this particularly complex task, which is not her fault, and far greater care should have been taken over planning, observation, analysis, recording, and supervision. The judge goes on to make various other concluding remarks about why she found the assessment inadequate, which I won't repeat because I'm probably running out of time. But interestingly, she writes at the very end, I feel obliged to refer this case to Her Honour Judge Atkinson and my family division liaison judge so that appropriate steps can be taken to ensure that those conducting lift assessments and the best research program managers and practitioners can be reminded of their obligations as court instructed experts and to ensure that no families are disadvantaged and no aspect of that valuable program is jeopardized. But on the bright side, the judge eventually makes a 12 month supervision order to support the placement of X with his mum. So that's the silver lining to that particularly odd cloud. What do you think, Maddie? It's a roller coaster, isn't it? I think 
I am so absolutely sick of attachment theory being used as a reason why children should not be with their parents. I think we've been having this debate for like 25 years. It started with Bowlby. It's developed into Lyft. It's developed into these mad psychological assessments about quality of attachment with children and parents. I do not agree with that. I think there's still a dissensus, to be fair, amongst professionals. I mean, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, etc., about whether or not attachment assessments can be suitable for child protection decisions. I think attachment assessments are suitable for targeting supportive intervention and using work and doing work with the parents because they are not indicative of how capable a parent is to look after their child. They're simply indicative of a quality of, of an X or Y relationship. So I am not an attachment theory fan. That being said, that is quite shocking that that work is still being done in our family courts and being used to make such significant decisions. What I will say is that whoever is the barrister for the mum, and I assume it says in the judgment, did a very good job because that is quite significant diving into questioning professionals that clearly have quite complex and difficult language and clearly have used quite complex assessments and that team have managed to really get a good result for that mother because this social worker and this doctor did not do what they were supposed to do and again I think I've said this about 10 times on the show but that is what our role is you know do the work and you'll realize that there is holes in things that you think there aren't holes in and attachment theory particularly is one of those things you can really come to court armed against because it has been rubbished by quite a lot of schools of thought particularly in relation to attachment theory on its own as a reason between foster care and rehabilitation that's not what Reby says and that's not what the law says and I don't know how this kind of social work is compatible with the good enough test and with the rebs test so all of that makes me very angry but good result for mum and I'm very pleased for her and it does sound like a good program when it's done properly and that's the difficulty is just and I think it again feeds back into a conversation we've had before about resources and availability of social workers and how well trained these people are we have to accept that we are living in an age where the government has basically ripped the copper wire out of all the local authorities and there's very little left to work with and that means things like this happen it's not anyone's fault as you say but it's a disappointing product of the system and it means that child protection decisions are being compromised every day and especially in light of things like potentially nonsense psychological arguments I think this case is also a helpful reminder, it shouldn't be something that's ever too far away from the forefront of our minds, that circumstances change, parents change, things change, and social work professionals can sometimes become blinkered because they've had long-standing involvement with a particular parent. I mean, on paper, this is a mother who's had eight other children, eight other children? Six other children, no, yeah, eighth child, seven other children, none of whom were in her care, quite a significant social care history. Proceedings had concluded in 2020 with three children being placed in long-term foster care. So it's one of those cases which a professional might look at, a local authority might look at on the papers and think, well, this is the writings on the wall. Obviously, we know how this is going to end. And that is precisely the approach that you don't take. You know, you have to be open-minded. You've got to think about how a parent can be supported to succeed rather than set up to fail. And I do think, unfortunately, I see in many cases, not always, I see some excellent social workers who, who do their very best to try and turn things around for parents. But sometimes I do see an approach which is very blinkered and close-minded and relies far too heavily upon the past and doesn't give parents enough credit for what they are doing right now. So it's a helpful reminder to professionals to, to keep their minds open. I think it's also, this is a good opportunity for you to have a little bit of a dig at the 26-week timetable, because I think when that was introduced and the PLO programme was pushed so far before things come to court, that's the point of it is you do the PLO and only if you fail or 
quote-unquote fail the PLO? Do you get to proceedings and by then everyone's mind's sort of made up and you've got six months to prove them wrong? That's not how we should be working and that's not what the court's for. We are a remedy court. We are there to provide remedies and solutions for families. And I think cases like this remind us that sometimes we move very, very far from that objective and that is not what you or I are in this job to do. And I think it's worth remembering that there may not be a solution, but it's you've got to try and see how many possible solutions you have before you write someone off. And I completely agree with you about, you know, on the on the paper, it's possible that a social worker might have come to this with a view that was preformed, and that is wholly incompatible with the legal position that we are dealing with. So, yeah, interesting. Thank you for that. I am talking about something that I know is quite close to your heart this week, Malvika, which is female genital mutilation protection orders, which come under the same school as forced marriage protection orders and are essentially a slightly new branch of family law sort of invented over the last 10 or so years to solve a problem that may have potentially been somewhat over-egged within the system. But it's also a really interesting case this week about other areas of family law that I want to look at. So the case is called Nottingham County Council and OA and Another. And it is a case about AE, who is a young girl now aged 17 months. She is the daughter of the mother, who is a highly educated Egyptian lawyer who did a law degree and then left work when she had the child. And her father, who is also Egyptian, who is slightly older than the mother. The mother, as far as the judge is aware, only lived in Egypt prior to the marriage and is an Egyptian national. She entered the country following the marriage on a spousal visa. And the parties have lived in Lancashire in the father's rented property ever since. And then they separated in 2020. So in the late summer of 2020, when the mother was in the early stages of pregnancy, she went to Egypt to see her family, stayed for some months. Father wasn't very happy about it and pronounced talak by telephone, which is Islamic divorce. The mother then returns to England, which again upsets the father, tries to return to live with him, but it was a very uncomfortable situation. And the mother essentially left the home in December 2020. The mother then made contact with the local authority or social services and complained about what she regarded to be the father's domestic abuse of her. She says that he never had any spare money and that he didn't give her any further money and that he told her he was in love with somebody else, which she regarded as emotional and financial abuse of her. Having reported these concerns to the local authority, the local authority undertook a Claire's Law search, which for anyone who doesn't know, is a search that you can do under Claire's Law to see if your partner has any previous convictions for domestic abuse. The local authority found that the father had been convicted of battery in 2016 of his first wife and he had been fined. That apparently was thought to put her at risk of physical abuse. And that's the judge's words, not mine. After one night, the mother was taken to a refuge in the Nottinghamshire area where she has lived ever since. Although in March 2021, she moved to another refuge where she still is. Meanwhile, on the 12th of January 2021, a National FGM Centre standard assessment was completed by the Lancashire Local Authority Children's Social Care Department. Now, my understanding of why that assessment was completed is because this child was Egyptian. There's no other allegations made of FGM at this stage. So a National FGM Centre assessment is completed. The factors were identified solely from what the mother said to the team at that time. They included that there is a strong level of influence on the family by pro-FGM elders or relatives, that there's a concern about flight risk, that the parents or carers had a limited understanding of FGM and the law in the UK, and a trusted adult had stated they wanted FGM to be performed on the as-yet-unborn child, and FGM is still actively practised in the parents' community or family. 
Now, for anyone who doesn't know, FGM is female genital mutilation, and it can involve the mutilation of various parts of the female genitalia, often for religious purposes, sometimes for what's considered hygiene purposes. And it's common in some areas of Central Africa and various other African countries. Um, for further information, you can find lots about it online. And the purpose of these orders, FGMPO orders, is to protect children from having FGM conducted upon them either within the, the UK or outside of it. So mother makes these allegations. The local authority find that the child is at risk of FGM. And by the turn of the year, beginning of 2021, mother's been out of the house about a month. Her complaints had extended to a significant fear of FGM. The judge says, it is clear to me that the complaints that were made by her of danger to the child were largely from the paternal family, but she also expressed that her own brother might be a risk. The mother herself had undergone the procedure organised as I accept it was by her own father without consulting her mother, and that it happened whilst her mother was at work. It took place when she was 10, which places it in or around 1995. She made it very clear that she did not want to go to Egypt. She was frightened of doing so because if she did, she felt that her daughter might be subject to FGM. These fears were expressed to a large number of people, including social workers from two different local authorities, refuge workers and domestic abuse charity workers, and her complaints were broadly all of the same nature. By the time the mother comes to court for this hearing, she has said that the social services have misquoted her and that they misunderstood what she was saying. But the mother said she was misused by social services to talk of her experiences for their own purposes, although it's impossible to imagine the judge says what those own purposes might have been. By February, the allegations are increasing and the fear of FGM was the mother's principal cause of concern and the reason why she was now dealing with these professional authorities. She told the social worker that the father firmly believed in FGM and that his own nieces had been subject to FGM. Now, this is an interesting paragraph, Malvika. Paragraph 14 of the judgment. It seems to me an oddity, this is Mr Justice Cohen who's hearing this case, it seems to me an oddity of the social services approach that everything that the mother said was taken as gospel truth. No inquiries were made of the father or the extended family. I understand that the social services starting point, and certainly the starting point of the refuge, should be to listen to the mother, but there is a difference between listening and assessing. I make no criticism at all of the local authority for issuing this application on the 12th of March 2021, but it was only after the institution of proceedings that the father was approached for his views, and in my judgment that should have happened earlier. So essentially we get to a point where the father's hauled in front of a court to explain behaviours that he's not even been asked about by the professionals who are bringing the application, and I'm not sure I've heard of that happening in quite some time. So the judge goes on to say that by the summer of 2021, uh, at which point he adds the mother had settled status in the UK, her allegations had gone through a 180 degree turn from fear of domestic abuse and fear of FGM to having no fears at all. The barrister on behalf of the local authority says that the mother's evidence had a number of themes, as I said earlier, and those themes are that she was misquoted by the local authority, she was deliberately mistold facts by the local authority, that she misunderstood because of the significant language barrier between her and the local authority, and there was pressure from the local authority and others, and I think that is a reference to the previous professionals, to speak of matters that were not true. And the mother, in her submissions to the judge, basically set out that she no longer had these allegations and did not think that her child was at risk of FGM. Now, the judge assesses these themes and says, whilst it seems to me that at most, if not all times, the mother was provided with appropriate assistance, this mother speaks pretty good English. It's not perfect, but she's very good at making herself understood. I accept that her English is better now than it was 18 months ago, but during the course of the hearing before me, if she thought the court interpreter was getting it wrong, she jumped in to say so. The mother speaks at great length, but I do not believe that her case has been misunderstood. I accept there may have been occasions where there were mistakes in translation. 
However, there are two interesting events during the course of the trial which cast some light on the mother's understanding. For example, some three working days before the case was due to start, when the judge was sitting in Nottingham, it was drawn to his attention that an email had been received by the court, which suggested that the mother was without representation for the trial that was about to begin. I called the case in for urgent directions, and counsel, who had just been instructed, attended on the mother's behalf. Over the next few days and weekend, he worked extremely hard preparing the mother's case. On the second day, he was abruptly dismissed by the mother. She felt she was better able to put the case herself. In addition, the mother had asked for and been provided with the usual special measures, a screen in court and a separate entrance. Those arrangements were all properly arranged, but it quickly emerged that the mother had no anxiety at all about seeing the father and was entirely happy for all special measures to be removed. Judge says, I was bemused as to why they were ever sought. The irresistible feeling I was left with, says the judge, and which reminds me, and which I find, is that the mother had been advised to use the system and complain first of domestic abuse and then of the risks of FGM for the purposes of advancing her settlement application. Her change of heart in the late summer of last year fits this timetable, and I can see no other explanation of her changing case. That, however, does not absolve me from trying to find out what the truth of the situation is. He goes on to look at the background of this particular child and the statistics of people who have been subject to FGM in Egypt and the age of the girls who have been subject to FGM as well. And he finds that the factors in this case, whilst it is relevant that both families live and come from industrial areas in the north of the country, both sets of families are professional and well-educated. AE is only one year old. And he puts weight on the fact that there is no recent history of FGM in either family, certainly for at least the past 25 years. He says he has no evidence that any younger member of the family has undergone it. The mother, at age 37, is the youngest member of the extended family known to have been subjected to the procedure. And if you remember, he says that puts it around 1995. So we're looking at about 25, 30 years ago. The mother does say to the court that she wants to take her daughter at some time in the future to Egypt, and the father is also keen that such a trip should occur. They would each like their respective mothers and no doubt extended families to have the opportunity of meeting her. The judge says, I'm not satisfied there's any significant risk in the event that AE was to travel overseas that she would be subjected to the procedure. Insofar as concern has risen, it has done so as a result of the mother crying wolf, and that's from the judgment. In other words, her own creation of a suspicion, which I do not believe is justified in fact. He says, I'm satisfied that the risk to AE as an infant, as the daughter of two intelligent, educated people in families that have no recent history of FGM is in fact minimal. And he looks at the checklist set out by Miss Justice Cobb in REX, that's the well-known FGMP case of 2019. And he says he's going to dismiss the application and discharge the orders that are already made. He does, however, make a contact order such that the father can spend some time with the baby who he's not yet met. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Maddie knows that I am generally concerned that there are certain laws which disproportionately affect certain communities. And this is not me diminishing the obvious and destructive effects of things like forced marriage or female genital mutilation, obviously, but there is a balance to be struck between protecting people and knee-jerk, culturally ill-informed reactions to risk, which could result in people being made subject to orders, sometimes on an ex parte basis, which are extremely draconian, on the basis of very weak evidence, which is why I was so pleased to read this judgment and to see a judge who is closely interrogating the evidence and not relying on prejudices or stereotypes about this family's particular cultural background. And that is precisely what we want to see when managing cases like this. I completely agree. I think it also does feed into quite an interesting discussion about the ways in which allegations of particular behaviour are treated by professionals and it depends who people come up against first who they report those allegations to 
as to the way that they are then treated. So, for example, I think there is some layered criticism within this judgment of the local authority social workers for not even speaking to the father about these allegations before taking very decisive action for protection of a child who may not have even been at risk. And we are not proponents on this show of state interference for the sake of state interference. This shouldn't have been allowed to happen. And this father should not have been subjected to proceedings that were unnecessary. And it concerns me that this is still happening in a system that is designed to protect people rather than to alienate people further from each other and to push people further apart. And it's telling that the mother's allegations, at least she had the insight to change her mind and drop the allegations by the summer. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes people do continue with allegations that they know to be false because they feel that it's beneficial to their own ends. And that is a difficulty in the system that I'm not sure any of us really know the answer to, but it does crop up occasionally in these kind of cases, not just FGM cases, sometimes in domestic abuse cases, sometimes in forced marriage cases and so on. And it precipitates a lot of work and a lot of professional intervention in cases where you don't actually need it. So social workers speak to dads, speak to mums, speak to wider family, see if there's any actual grounding for these allegations before rushing off to court. Although, of course, that's not a criticism and it's not a criticism levelled at them in the judgment either because they were acting on the information they were given. What have you got this week for your recommendations? Well, you found a case close to my heart, so I found a podcast close to yours, and that is the BBC Analysis podcast, Is Ethical Surrogacy Possible by Sonia Soda. Pretty sure I've recommended BBC Analysis before, the episode on parental alienation. And my view, and probably Maddie's view, is that current surrogacy law is not fit for purpose. It is, in theory, under review. And the podcast looks at how it could be regulated in this jurisdiction. And Sonia Soda speaks to women who have had both positive and negative experiences of being surrogates. The podcast speaks to Julie Bindle, a very controversial feminist campaigner who says that the inside of a woman's body should never be considered a suitable workplace. So she thinks that surrogacy can never be ethical in any circumstances. It looks at the approach which is taken to surrogacy in different jurisdictions and compares that to what we do here. It looks at the power imbalance between surrogates and those who are seeking to use a surrogate because some women are sometimes using surrogacy as a means to make money because they are desperate for some sort of income. And it also looks at the outcomes to children born to surrogates, albeit the conclusion appears to be that there's limited research in this vein and we need to do more. So it's a quick 30 minute episode, but it packs a punch because it covers quite a lot in quite a short period of time. And for anyone who's interested in surrogacy and interested in what the law is in this jurisdiction, it gives you an interesting critical overview. Thank you. I'm not sure I can recommend a podcast featuring Julie Bindle, but that may be a matter for another discussion. My recommendations are slightly more nerdy. I've got two, actually. The first is, I think, uh, one for the practitioners. It's the recent view from the President's Chambers dated July 2022. It's very, very short, and it deals with two things contained within the Domestic Abuse Act of 2021, which came into force in July. And the first of those is that there is what is considered a lower that is McFarlane's words, not mine, Threshold for Children Act 1989, Section 9114 orders. Now, Section 9114 order is an order that says that a party must have permission of the court before they can launch another application under a various section of the Act. It was initially a very, very high test case called RUP, essentially said it needed to be multiple and vexatious applications before the court would consider putting in a 9114 bar because of Article 6. But what McFarlane says is that 
Section 91A, as inserted into the Children Act by Section 67 of the Domestic Abuse Act, establishes a new lower statutory threshold for the deployment of 9114 prohibition, by which the power may be exercised when the court is satisfied that the making of an application for a child arrangements order of a specified kind would put the child concerned or another individual at risk of harm. So that's something for the practitioners to keep an eye out. I think we're going to see more and more applications for 9114 orders as the court tries to get private children applications out of the court system. So that's an interesting tool to have. The second part of it is it talks about the new system for appointing advocates for those who are not legally represented in fact findings. Now, there was a whole thing about this in a case called PSMPP back in 2018 that said that we desperately need statutory intervention on this. It's not right that alleged abusers are permitted to cross-examine vulnerable witnesses in court when the same is not applicable in criminal courts and we don't have the same safeguards in family courts, even though we're dealing with the same allegations. So the government swiftly, in four short years, enacted this statute, which allows for an unrepresented party to apply for a court-appointed advocate to represent them in a fact-finding and put their questions to the witness. And it sets out the view from the President's Chambers all of the procedure for doing that, it sets out the new practice direction 3AB, it sets out the guidance, it sets out the sections of the Act. Basically, if you've got a note to write about this, then it's all in the President's view and it's very helpful. So if you have questions about that new scheme, it comes in only on cases that are issued after the 21st of July 2022. So if you're in proceedings already, it's not applicable, but it will be from the 21st of July, any proceedings issued after that, then have a look at it because that is where you can find the answers. Maddie, are you going to be signing up to be a qualified legal representative, one of those court-appointed lawyers? No comment. Are you? I think I don't want to be the guinea pig for the programme, so I think I'm going to wait and see how some of my colleagues find the process before I put myself forward, before I offer myself as tribute. So we'll see. Watch this space. We might have a day in the life coming to you shortly. My second recommendation is from The Guardian, and it is a study that was published yesterday, I believe, about the judiciary. The article is dated the 18th of October, that says that the judiciary in England and Wales has found to have been institutionally racist, with more than half of legal professionals surveyed claiming to have witnessed a judge acting in a racially biased way. The study by the University of Manchester and barrister Keir Monteith KC found judicial discrimination to be directed particularly towards black court users, from lawyers to witnesses to defendants. I'm sure you all remember the scandal of what happened to Essex barrister, friend of the show, Alex Wilson, when she attended a court building and was mistaken for a defendant. And this is essentially a report coming out of that, and also in line with the Lamy report as well. And it essentially sets out that we have a problem, a real problem in our profession. It was a survey of 373 legal professionals that found that 56% stated they'd witnessed at least one judge acting in a racially biased way towards a defendant. I'm not clear if it's only criminal law or civil law because I've only looked at the Guardian article, not read the report yet because it only came out yesterday. But the study also criticises the current five-year strategy to boost judicial diversity for failing to mention racial bias or racism training within it. Professor Leslie Thomas Casey, a very, very amazing man, wrote the report's foreword about the judiciary and set out that judges need to sit up and listen. It is a myth that Lady Justice is blind to colour. Our judiciary as an institution is just as racist as our police forces, our education system and our health service. This is something that cannot be ignored for any longer. 
So I'm going to link the article and I'll also link the main report. Please, please give it a read or at least bear it in mind when you're moving through the court system. This is something that is a stain on all of us and that all of us have a responsibility to fix. So please read that and please get up and do something about it because this is something that absolutely can't continue. And this is not a system that either of us would be proud to be working in. So please give it a read and be aware of those issues. Yeah, this is the face of someone who is completely and utterly not shocked by what that report has found. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people of colour, a lot of black people let things slide because there is an imbalance of power between the judiciary and court users and they don't want any complaint or any escalation to be used against them for lawyers professionally for other court users because they don't want that to affect their case and so things are left to slide and patterns continue and so it's the job of everyone allies not just the people who are suffering within that institutionally racist system to call it out otherwise nothing is ever going to happen and I'm tired of hearing chat and chat and report after report about it can we just do something now yeah I completely agree and that's also a call to all white barristers that it's also our responsibility as well to make sure that we're supporting those around us as best that we can that's also on all of us I don't have a tweet of the week this week because I've been on Twitter looking at what's been happening with the government basically every day for 10 days. I've not been on legal Twitter very much. I'm hoping that you have a good one to make up for that. Unfortunately, Maddie, I don't have one either. It's probably good news that I haven't been on Twitter very much in the last couple of weeks, but I had a quick scroll today and I couldn't find anything that I thought I wanted to flag. So we will leave that for this week and we will have an extra hard look at Twitter because shame on us for not being on legal Twitter, causing fights. And a reminder that you can always send us tweets that you think might be interesting if you want us to talk about them. We're very happy to do that. So do let us know in future if there's anything you want us to discuss. Great. Well, thank you so much for listening. That is episode three. We're flying through season three and we will be back with you in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And just a shout out as well. On the last episode, I discussed a case which I think is one of the million FNMs that's come out recently. It was a case about an expert and we had a discussion about regulation of experts and guidance being needed and we said watch this space and literally as soon as that episode was recorded we found out that that judgment is under appeal and I believe that it is due to be heard next week so hopefully we will have that out before the next episode and I can discuss it in the case analysis part of the pod but keep an eye out for that and I'll put the linked to the Guardian article, which told me that it was under appeal by the same journalist who reported on the original first instance case. And hopefully people will be able to dial in on that. I'm sorry if you can hear some scratching in the background. It's my cat digging her claws into my seat. And the other thing is by the time our next episode is out, I'm going to be in India. So we're going to go on tour and I'm going to be recording from India. So wish me luck. It'll be a bit of a culture shock for the next six weeks, I think. Very exciting. All the best. We will see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everyone.